This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. The United States is a net exporter of culture to the world, primarily through our music. So why don't we seem to believe that musicians deserve to make a living? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we talk to musician Blake Morgan about how he started the hashtag I Respect Music campaign, about why middle-class musicians are so important to America, and about who the real users are, music listeners or tech companies. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to musician Blake Morgan. Blake, welcome to the future of what. Thanks for having me. So you are a musician. That's true. You also, interestingly enough, own your own record label. That is also true. Do you know about A2IM? I do know about A2IM. Are you guys members? We're not actually. Oh, you should be. Yeah, there's not any reason that we're not. We just haven't been. So that's something. I went to their awards show, in fact, like two months ago. Oh, did you see me on stage all night? I did see you on stage all night. <laughs> so, yeah. Wearing my fancy dress. I was telling somebody the other day that I'm one of those people who like never buys clothes ever. Uh-huh. But so it's like I have the same wardrobe that I've had since I was like 22 or something. Right. Except the ball gown section of my <laughs> closet <laughs> keeps increasing. Like that is not what I thought my life would be right, like. Right, right. You've got two wardrobes. It's, it's, you're kind of doing like the Bruce Wayne Batman thing. Totally, totally. <laughs> Someone would like raid my house and be like, what? What is this? Who is right. that person? Who is this person? Right. <laughs> anyway, well, cool. That's great that you know about A2M, so yeah. I don't need to give you the pitch. And I certainly don't need to do it on air, which is <laughs> fine. But the reason I asked you to come here today is because you have been a big activist for musicians. And one of the things you've been working on is this I Respect Music campaign. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. It's become the largest grassroots campaign in the history of American music, apparently. Wow. And I smile when I say that because I know how it started and it was completely accidental. And I find myself (laughs) in this hilarious position. But yeah, you know, I've, I've been a musician my whole adult life. And although I had even written a couple op-eds and I'd spoken out about music makers' rights and how we're not getting paid appropriately in in the digital age. I'd stepped up a couple times, but I hadn't really dived into the pool. And then uh, what happened three, four years ago, I just accidentally got into this the way a lot of people do with their own activism, which is they decide at one point or one day that they've just had enough and they actually decide to do something. And in my case, I got... uh, this is a really well-known story now, but I, I got a blanket email from Tim Westergren, from the founder of Pandora, as thousands of other musicians did. And it was a, a letter imploring us to support their letter that they were going to be sending to Congress about how awesome they are and about how they're really great for musicians and how much we love them as musicians and how fantastic and awesome they are filled with their awesomeness. So I got this blanket email and it's one of those folksy emails from a CEO of a company where it's like, from Tim at Pandora. And for whatever reason that day, I wrote back and I wrote this very respectful reply, which simply said, I'd I'd love to support your letter and and sign on to it as you're suggesting. The only thing is, is that you're actually going to be using this letter to lobby Congress to lower my royalties up to 85%. And it's almost as if you didn't think I knew that. Oh, wow. So I can't support this. I'd love to believe that your heart's in the right place. But, you know, the reality and facts get in the way of that. So I can't. And I just sort of did this like, okay. And I went to the gym and I, I sort of almost forgot about it. And I sent it to one friend of mine in L.A., And I just said, I think you're going to get a kick out of this. I don't know why I did this. And he called me back in about five minutes and said, are you going to blog about this? Are you going to post this anywhere? And I said, no, I don't even have a blog. And he said, well, do you mind if I put it on my blog? And I said, sure, go ahead. And so he did. And overnight it blew up and it blew up to such a degree that the next day, Tim Westergren wrote me back. And uh, this was a very Jedi email that felt to me as if a bunch of people around a conference table had said, okay, how do we respond to this? Which I found hilarious because I had just sort of batted it off. 
And this one said, well, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about Pandora. We're not seeking to lower royalties substantially at all. Totally untrue. In fact, we're seeking a way for musicians to participate in the business. And that moment really was, in fact, my aha moment. And so I wrote back again, and I said, and I sort of rolled up my sleeves for this one, and I said, you know, I hear you when you say that you're seeking a way for musicians to participate in the business. The only thing is, we are your business. And without us, you don't have a business. And I went on from there. And that full email exchange got picked up by the Huffington Post. And when that happened, it really blew up. And the following morning that the email exchange was published, Pandora lost $130 million in market cap value on the stock market. Wow. And my friend in LA, who I had sent the original letter to, called me, time difference and everything, in New York, and said, dude, have you seen Pandora stock today? And I said, yeah, because you know I wake up and I check it every day. <laughs> of course, right. that's what I do. And he said, you need to check this, because it had happened in the first half an hour of trading. And I actually saw it, and my heart stopped and I went to like my kitchen and had a shot of whiskey at 10 o'clock in the morning, not to celebrate, but really kind of in a, oh my God, I didn't know I could do that. What, what else, like, what else could I do? Right. And so really from then on, that's, that was the beginning of the I Respect Music idea that, you know, if I stepped up, I could maybe make something of a difference. I could move the needle. And a couple months later, the letter that they were going to use to lobby Congress was about the so-called Internet Radio Fairness Act, which was this piece of legislation at the time that they had spent millions of dollars on, which was about removing our performance royalty from digital radio, right? And so a couple months later, they abandoned their own signature legislation and said, well, you know, we really weren't actually that focused on that anyway. Total lie. <laughs> so I, I certainly can't take credit for that, nor do I want to, but I definitely feel there had been so much work and so much opposition to IRFA, you know, before I ever showed up. But I, I definitely think that those emails and what I did sort of helped pop the, the top of the ketchup bottle off finally, you know. Mm -hmm. And that was a moment when I said, well, now, wait a minute, we've actually won a round here. And as music makers, we're not used to doing that. No. So I wonder what else I could really do. Like, what, what if, what could, what could I do now? What if we weren't always against something? What if we weren't against piracy and against not being paid fairly? We should be against those things. But what if our rallying cry was something positive? And there were a couple of people who also said, well, you know, you, you've helped beat back IRFA, but it's just going to come back. It's a zombie bill. It'll, it'll be back all the time. And so I thought, well, what if we fought for the performance royalty at all forms of radio? What if we actually stepped into this and had a positive message? And of course, you know, I Respect Music is a tangential homage to Aretha Franklin. There are still many people who don't understand that artists don't get paid for terrestrial radio. So Aretha Franklin, for example, has never been paid one penny for R-E-S-P-E-C-T, for respect being on the radio in the United States. She didn't write the song, Otis Redding wrote the song. And Otis Redding does get paid as he should, but not as much as he should. So that was my idea to step into it and to fight for performance royalties at, at AMFM and at all forms of radio. And I wrote, a, I wrote an op-ed at the end of that year. This was in, at the end of 2013 about an experience I had had. I was invited to go back to the United Nations School where I had gone to school all those years. And you went to Stuyvesant, right? Mm -hmm. So I was invited to go back for career day to talk about my life in music and what's it like being a grown-up musician. And I, was, I told the kids in the class that, you know, if you're in this room instead of the doctor room or the advertising room and you're in the art room, there's something that must have called you here. And I hope you follow that calling with everything that you have. And I hope you go for it without a plan B. And the teacher at the back of the classroom stood up and said, no, don't listen to him. You should always have a plan B. And I wrote, I wrote an op-ed about this experience and about the, the girl in the class who then came to a concert of mine in New York a few weeks later with her CD and said, I just want you to know I am going for it. And her mom was there too. And she was crying and we had this really emotional moment. And I, and I ended that piece saying, I really respect that young woman for, for stepping into her dream and for going for it and for her mother standing with her. And my New Year's resolution is that I want to step up more and I want to speak out more. I respect artists. I respect my profession. I respect music. And that's the first time I wrote those words. And a few weeks later, then I launched irespectmusic.org, which was and is a very simple petition to the House Intellectual Property Subcommittee, urging them to support artists pay for radio play. Totally simple. And we launched it a few weeks later. And what ended up happening was in between the article getting posted and the launch of the petition, people started spontaneously posting photos with themselves holding up a hashtag, I respect music. And I never told anybody to do that. They just started doing it. And then one of the early people of note 
especially in music advocacy, who stepped up was David Lowry, and he posted one. And that was a really important moment, I think, for the campaign before we had ever launched. You know, I just put up this thing that said, I respect music is coming. And people started doing this. And when David did that, it was courageous and it showed unity. And it also said, there's so much almost competition on our side, meaning on the music maker side about these issues, songwriters versus recording artists and publishers versus songwriters. And it's all crap. We're all on the same side. And I think when David did that, it was a, a, an enormous boost because it said, hey, somebody else is stepping up and I'm in. You know? And especially someone like David, who's a total friend of the show. He's, I love that guy, but he has been divisive in sure. certain ways. I mean, there are people who will argue both sides of, you know, pro and, and con what, what David Lowry oh, sure. has to say. So, Well, that's the battle that he's on. Yeah. And, you know, the first one through the wall is always bloody mm-hmm. and David's bloody. And he's yeah. got his own blood on him and he's got other people's blood on him. But there's no doubt about his courage and there's no doubt what he's fighting for. And so when he stepped up and did that, it meant the world to me. And I think it helped legitimize something that people, like nobody knew what irespectmusic.org was going to be. It could be a site about music for cats. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody knew what it was. So the fact that he did that really helped kick it off. And in fact, the campaign launched on a day when he was testifying before Congress. Wow. And so thousands and thousands and thousands of these petitions started coming in and they all thought that he had something to do with it. And, he's, and he was like, I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> and it really, that was an important moment also because then it was like, wait a minute, there's somebody else doing this now. And there've been so many since then who've done that as well. Miranda Mulholland and Zoe Keating, the list goes on and on, but every one of us, meaning music makers, and I think in my case, specifically a middle-class music maker, which is a term a lot of people don't tend to hear, but that's exactly who I am. That is so important. And that's really what this campaign is about. It's not just about Beyonce and Justin Timberlake getting another couple million dollars for their music being on radio, although they deserve it. It's about people like me who are paying their mortgages and paying their health insurance and on tour and making their records for whom 50,000 records that you used to sell are now 50,000 streams or 50,000 plays on Pandora, which is worth $1.65. Right. That's really what we're talking about. And when I started going to Capitol Hill and meeting with members of Congress, that was what I would say to them. And, and they really had never heard that argument before. In fact, there was one exchange I had with a member of Congress where I said what I just said to you. And he sat up on his couch and he said, you, Blake, you have a mortgage. <laughs> and he just sort of nodded wow. his head. And I was about to like maybe freak out a little bit. And very much to his credit, he said, forgive me for how naive that sounds. But that's just not something that I hear up here. That's not something that we hear up here. We have rock stars coming in, talking about what's fair and what's not fair, and they're right. But you're here, sitting here in my office, and all we do all day on television and on radio and with each other, talk about the middle class and about how middle class is the foundation on which this country is built. And here you sit with your health insurance payments and your mortgage payments, and what you're saying is, shouldn't I just be paid for my work? And I said, that's right, sir. So it was actually a great moment, but he'd simply never heard that before. Yeah. I can hear you say that I was trouble. I can hear you say that I wasn't sweet. I can hear you going on about what went wrong. You better stay away. I can hear you say 
was I Can Hear You Say by Blake Morgan. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to musician Blake Morgan. We could go on and on forever because I think one of the problems we have as the music industry is that we have allowed ourselves to be so fragmented that when people have questions about what's going on, they don't have a clear, concise side. You know, we don't we don't come across with a united front and just say, hey, this is what we're standing for. Because like you said, it's songwriters versus musicians versus whatever. Right. I mean it's and what about side musicians? Majors what about versus recording indies. In, right. What about recording engineers? Well what about everybody getting paid? Right. And as someone who is a singer, a songwriter, a record producer, a multi instrumentalist and a label owner, you know, it's very difficult for one part of me to be mad at another part of me if that part is getting paid. Right. You know? <laughs> So I've never understood, you know, I'm, I'm an old Monty Python fan. And in the life of Brian, you know, there, there's this ongoing joke where all of the different characters in the movie, they all hate the Romans, but they hate each other more. So the Judean people's front hates the people's front of, of Judea, Judea more yeah. than the Romans. And I really feel that's actually a joke that Lowry and I have. And we've talked about this. We have actually matching t-shirts. I have one that says people from Judea. And he has one that says Judean people's front. But, you know, that really is something that harms this cause and harms our arguments. Mm -hmm. It's nonsensical. Why would songwriters resent artists from being paid and vice versa? And I have to tell you in college lecture after college lecture after college lecture that I do about I Respect Music, when I talk to college kids and I mention this part of what's going on, they're all dumbfounded. They're like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. This doesn't exist on right. the street. Right. This doesn't exist in people's consciousness. It's, right. it's a very wonky music industry problem mm -hmm. and it's nonsensical. You know, this is really a fight in which a rising tide does lift all boats. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's similar to, you know, other political problems we have in this country where the dominant culture is able to divide and conquer and keep people down right. by fighting and doing, you know, having infighting rather right. than fighting the actual oppressor. That's or, right. That's, or, that's, you know. that's exactly right. And they're very happy to see us squabble over the crumbs on the table instead well, of saying, well, how about a whole new loaf? Exactly, and, exactly. And we're not seeking a way to participate in your business. We're your business. Mm -hmm. You know, Spotify again and again and again talks about how they have the best product. And I was part of an artist only meeting in New York a couple of years ago with members of Spotify. And they surrounded me afterwards because I made some trouble in the meeting as I do. And we were talking afterwards and this guy from Spotify said, you know, the thing is that we just have the best product. Don't you understand that we're really, we're saving music. And I said, you know what, man, you keep saying that you have the best product just, and I'm not having a go. Like, can you describe to me what your product is? And he said, what do you mean? Our product is Spotify. And I said, no, man, that's your problem. That's your problem right there. Your product isn't Spotify. Like, yeah, it is. What do, you, what do you mean? I said, no, it's not. Your product is music. Right. And the reason that I know this is that if you and I walked down on the street right now and asked a thousand people what Starbucks product is, every one of them would say coffee and not a single one of them would say, what do you mean? Their product is Starbucks. Right. <laughs> and he looked at me as if I had shot Santa Claus in the face right in front of him. <laughs> and he came back. He said, no, that's not true. You're wrong. You're like, it was really kind of a culty response. Mm -hmm. And when you go at them respectfully like this and simply question the ethos under which they're living, they really don't know what to say. And while we were at it, I said, you know, by the way, you keep describing 
people as users. They're using Spotify. They're users. You know, I just want to make this clear. They're not, you shouldn't call them that. They're not users. They're listeners. Right. They're my listeners. Okay. You're the user. Right. What you're doing is you're using our music to monetize our listeners for right. your profit. Right. And a lot of people don't understand that in order to make minimum wage on Spotify, an artist would have to get 380,000 spins a month to earn $1,400 a month, which is minimum wage, okay? Mm -hmm. So you need 380,000 spins to earn $1,400 a month. That's minimum wage as an artist. Meanwhile, the average Spotify employee makes $13,000 a month. Mm -hmm. And their response is, well, we have to pay good coders. Well, I hope coders do get paid well, but shouldn't the people who make Spotify's only product actually get paid you know, something. <laughs> yeah. And that's, a, I mean, we can go on about that because, you know, I, as a label owner, had lived through that. I, sure. I took over Kill Rock Stars in 2006, which was still the year when we could sell music right. as, you know, physical product. Right. And I lived through the, the apocalypse. Digital, the apocalypse. Yeah. And I mean, literally, because what happened overnight was people woke up and instead of seeing... I want music because music is a thing that I value that and and music is the end product itself. All of a sudden we were music is free and it became about delivery systems. That's right. Just like that. What year did you feel that the most as a label owner? 2010? Uh-huh. Maybe? Yeah, that's about right us too. Yeah. S same kind of thing. And it was it was really hard and yeah. you know a lot of labels didn't make it. A lot yeah. of musicians didn't make it. That's right. You know, and that's a that's a sad statement about our culture is, you know, we don't want this to be corporate music. I mean, right. I keep, I wake up every morning and I think about that Nirvana t-shirt from 1991 that said corporate rock still sucks, That's right. which they don't produce anymore, of right. course. <laughs> right. But it's like, I, you know, I think about that every single day and yeah. I'm just like, this is not about making other people rich. This is about allowing there to be a middle class of musicians. That's right. Which is exactly why I started doing this podcast. And it's a great podcast when, thank God thank you're you. doing it. That's exactly right. And the other piece of the, the middle class part and musicians and emerging musicians who haven't even reached the middle class in this profession, you know, rock and roll, hip hop, blues, and on and on and on. Every one of these genres of music are A, an American innovation, first mm -hmm. of all. So I don't want to hear that us getting paid as music makers is going to crush innovation. We're the ones innovating. <laughs> right. Thank you. You yes. just have a platform on the interweb, Mr. Spotify. Yes. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is that each of these art forms they don't trickle down, they bubble up. They come from impoverished people who are upset or angry or who have something to say and they do it in a new way. Like you mentioned Nirvana. Well, Nirvana flipped music to the cool side of the pillow, if you will, almost overnight by changing how we thought of what pop music and what rock music could sound like. And there are umpteen examples of this, but how many in the last 10 years, you know? Yeah. How many of those brilliant musicians, men and women, that we're not hearing from because they cannot possibly make a living doing this mm -hmm. and they're not going to be. What is right. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame going to look like 25 years from now? Right. Who's going to be inducted 25 years from now? Right. It's not a joke. We really are running out. Those rungs on the ladder where you're able to grab hold and then pull yourself up a rung and pull yourself up a rung, they're not there. Right. And there's no music maker who would ever begrudge this profession who resents that it's hard. Right. It is hard. It's supposed to be hard. I right. personally like that it's hard, but there's a big difference between hard and impossible while other people are making $13,000 a month. Right. Well, and also it got framed badly at the beginning, right? And we've been fighting that ever since because God love Metallica, right? Right on. But the thing is when, it, when it's framed by a millionaire right. as this is not fair, right. I'm not making enough money, right. nobody has sympathy for that person. That's right. And I. And I think Tidal made the same mistake with their launch. It was a horrific press conference. And, and again, the launch of Tidal, as far as I understand the company, they're standing on two ideals. We want music lovers to get better sounding music, higher quality files, and we want music makers to get paid more. That's a great pitch. Both great, yes. Great. But the press conference, you know, the star-studded press conference, if I had been in charge of the press conference, I would have said, okay, folks, here's what I want on stage. I want Jay-Z, and then to his right, I want a kid who's in music school, and then to the kid's right, I want Madonna, and then to Madonna's right, I want a firefighter who's standing with musicians because everyone should be paid for their work, and then next to the firefighter, I want a legacy jazz artist who's living in Harlem on Medicare, and then next to the legacy jazz, like that's what I would have exactly. wanted. That would have sent the correct message. And I right. think that they fell into that trap, right. which is we're millionaires and we should be paid even more. 
Yeah. And then just you don't you don't have anyone on your side. And the the problem is it comes right back to the congressman who says you have a mortgage. Right. I had no idea you had a mortgage. That's incredible. You're a regular human being you who's trying to and have a mortgage. Yes, get through. <laughs> That's right. Just on a because you know I think about Sue Ennis because I adore uh-huh. Sue Ennis. If you know who she is, she's yeah. a songwriter. She wrote "Dog and Butterfly," the right. heart song, right? And I feel like all the sixty-year-old women in America who loved that song in high school or in college or whatever, none of them would begrudge Sue a living, right? Do you know what I mean? That's right. Because she wrote a song that changed their lives. Well, listen, my godmother was Leslie Gore, world famous for iconic tracks like "You Don't Own Me" and "It's My Party" and. And she was like my rock and roll godmother, right? So she took me to my first music store to get my first keyboard and my look at my first bass. And once my label got up and running and we'd had some success, she came to me and she was like, hey, kid, you know, we should cut a side together, which was so old school, you know? And I was like, yeah, we should cut a record together. And we did. We made a record and it turned out to be her last record because she died a couple of years ago. And it was a record that really put her on the map as, a, as the Academy Award nominated songwriter that she was and as the great singer that she was. But, you know, right at the end of her life and in working with her as an adult, once we had made that record together, you know, there wasn't any part of her life that wouldn't have been better, including the end of her life, if she had been paid for It's My Party and You Don't Own Me being on the radio. Mm -hmm. She sold 20 million records and she never made a penny from It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To being on the radio. And she worked in casinos and sang at state fairs and she was flying and performing right up until the end of her life. And I have a feeling that she would have wanted to work hard anyway, because that's the kind of person that she was. But, you know, it could have been that much easier. And what other great songs could she have written? What Mm -hmm. other music could she have made if she was paid for her work Mm -hmm. instead of the radio conglomerate sucking up that money and advertising around her music without having to pay for it? So it's another example. You know, she's she deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's certainly a Hall of Fame uh, 20th century music figure. And she's an example of someone who was never paid appropriately. And she's a family member of mine, Mm -hmm. you know, so. Absolutely. That was Multidimensional Spectrum by Taiwan Housing Project. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to musician Blake Morgan. So the interesting thing is the the current piece of legislation where this is at right now is fair play, fair pay. Mm-hmm. 
And I have heard lately from from several people who are in the know that it's actually got some legs mm-hmm. right now, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, I think it does have some legs. It was written by Congressman Nadler, who happens to be my congressperson. He was the first member of Congress that I met with on the Hill. It's a bipartisan piece of legislation. He and Marsha Blackburn are at the forefront of it. It would solve an enormous amount of problems that we have, and it would get the performance royalty at terrestrial radio without you know, having to give anything in particular away. I don't even like phrasing it that way, but it, it would really be a win. And I, I also think that you know, the National Association of Broadcasters at this point I liken them to big oil and big tobacco. You know, they know that they're doing the wrong thing. They know it's morally wrong. They know that people now understand that it's morally wrong. And they kind of don't seem to really care, in my opinion. They're really just trying. It's like Exxon knows that they're doing bad things to the planet. They know this is really bad for everyone alive. But they're just going to sort of keep doing it as long as they can. Philip Morris knows that they're killing people. But they're just going to try to get away with as long as they possibly can. as long as they can, yeah. And if people, if there's collateral damage along the way, well, you know what? It's always been hard, right? So, I, But I do think that over the last few years, the NAB is seen that way. And that's one of the reasons I do think that that fair play, fair pay has legs. You know, Congress acts when people make them. Mm-hmm. And the, whether through I Respect Music or so many other campaigns and and the great work of, you know, all of our music organizations, Music First and, you know, down the line, Sound Exchange, there's been just a, a really steady amount of pressure on this particular pressure point. So I, I do think it has legs. And it's always a convoluted process on the Hill. And it's even more convoluted now. But I'm really hopeful. So I, yeah. I, I think we could really see something in the next in the next stretch. And if that happens, that'll be a huge deal. Now, you said it's a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. However, it'll have absolutely no effect on my life because none of my artists get played on the radio, right. which is a whole other conversation. Right. About well, why is it that indie music is not played on the radio? No kidding. And there has to be some kind of ironic wry smile that we should cast, which is that I'm at the forefront of artists being paid on the radio and I'm not on the radio exactly. either. So, <laughs> right. so who am I fighting for? Right. Well, I'm fighting for the idea because yeah. the idea is the right one. It's right. And also so many musicians, even if those artists did who are played on commercial radio got paid and they should, that would still be good for all of the musicians who work on all of those songs and exactly. play on those songs and the exactly. record producers and the recording engineers and the touring musicians. You know, I'm on tour right now. So, you know, everything gets paid for by by everything that gets paid for. So it would still be a good thing, a very, very important thing. And again, much like Urfa getting pulled back, that wasn't a win, that was a win via subtraction, meaning like they pulled back on their awful thing. But every time we do score a victory, it's incredibly important because it demonstrates not only to the other side, but to each other that we can win. That's right. And we do. Yeah. So I, I think this would be, and also, you know, the the lack of a performance royalty on terrestrial radio it's the oldest, stupidest, most egregious thing that we're up against. Right. You know, so can we at least solve the old, the ninety-year-old right. problem? Right. You know, we have seventy-year-old problems too, and eighty-year-old yeah. problems. And again, I'm not someone who thinks that any one of these is necessarily more deserving than any other. You know, they all deserve to be won, and, and I'm confident that we will win all of them. But I do have to say, this one's the oldest, and it's just the—it's the dumbest. It's the dumbest. When the yeah. United States is the only democratic country in the world where artists don't get paid for radio play, yeah. and Iran and North Korea are two countries right. that share this distinction, <laughs> folks, can we please just get on the same page <laughs> yeah, about this one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, as I have said to Congress when I've gone to Grammys on the Hill and various other things with A2IM, you know— this would open the floodgates to reciprocal royalties from other oh. countries. And, and America is a net cultural exporter. Correct. People around the world are playing more of our music than we are playing of their music. We don't have Latvian bands on the radio. Right. We don't, you know, we barely have, we right. have one French band I can right. I can think of I on the radio. S- I couldn't agree more. And I say that all the time. Music is one of the things America still makes that the world still wants. That's right. And those musicians who make that music should be paid for their work. Absolutely. You know, the world speaks English you know, I argue much more because of our music and because of our movies than because of our armies and because of our navies. Absolutely. And the way that we culturally export rock and roll and hip hop and, and again and again and again, you know, art form after art form, this is an enormous 
power that we wield as a nation. We should be proud that we came up with these art forms. Exactly. You know? And those people should be paid for their work. It's so embarrassing. It's just, it's incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, at this point, I always say on this show that the music business is a patchwork of historical accidents. Right. So this is probably one of the biggest accidents yeah. that we could fix quite easily. And that would change a lot for a lot of people. That's right. Quite quickly. That's right. But it would also pave the way for the next fight that we have to have and the next That's fight. Right. And so I'm going to ask you, because I'm sure you're aware, you're a very aware guy, but you've heard about this whole transparency in music licensing and ownership act. Have yeah, you heard about that? I, I have heard about this. Yes. This is, this could be a real, a real bad one. This is a really bad one. It really is. Yeah. And, and again, it, it's almost like, you know, it's like this whack-a-mole problem where like, a, again, we're, we're fighting for what's right. And again, and again, and again, something comes up that is backwards, meaningless, divisive. It's a distraction. It's regressive. It's incomprehensibly stupid. <laughs> punitive in this case. Punitive. That's right. Yeah. It's punitive. I mean, this is designed to drive songwriters out of business yeah. and labels. Yeah. Because I was saying the other day, I would, we did a whole episode on it. I would have to hire people mm -hmm. to register all my music with this putative copyright database that's supposedly going to be created out of thin air. That's right. Yeah. And I would too at my yeah. level. So then how do we... How do we how survive do, How that? do we... Exactly. We just wouldn't. We wouldn't. Yeah. And the transparency issue, it's a white elephant or a red mm -hmm. herring. Or red herring. There's, there's, a, yeah. there's a color and an animal in there somewhere. <laughs> totally. Um, you know... Someone somewhere in some room came up with this mm -hmm. as, and, you know, dare I say, and I'm sorry to step into this, but it's a, it's almost a Trumpian strategy. Mm -hmm. It's let's put something into the bloodstream that actually really isn't an issue and make it an issue and then blame that for all of the problems that we're, right. that we're actually experiencing. Right. Like it's, it's all of the Martians who have come to the United States and are stealing our jobs. That's, That's right. the problem. Yes. And so that really, this really feels like that to me. It feels like it's a red herring and, and you can feel it. It, it. It's already trickled into all kinds of different arguments. You know, how, how can YouTube, and it's, this isn't the piece of legislation you're talking about, but it, it's related. YouTube's argument essentially is, well, how can we possibly police our own platform? Well, it's your platform, it's your dude. your platform. You, you can do anything it. you want. Why, and why they do police it. Exactly. You police it anyway. But, yeah. you, but are you saying that it's my job to police your platform, right. your horrible platform? But then it's and that Spotify's, your... And that spot, sorry to interrupt, but that, that Spotify's argument as well. Well, we can't be responsible for tracking down all of the writers on all of these songs. Yes, you can. You can absolutely. Well, they're just trying to fix a problem that because they went ahead and and put the music up before they got licenses. Exactly. That's a simple. They just exactly. simply screwed up. Exactly. They shouldn't have done that. No. And now that they have done it, it's actually not that, you know, yes, they're going to have to spend some money That's to right. find those people. Cry me a river. Cry me a river. You put the music up. Right. You didn't have to do that. And that, you know, that was the choice. That's right. But the Cry, YouTube. Cry me a river, by the way, probably a song they don't have a mechanical license for. But go exactly. ahead. <laughs> But YouTube is a, is a perfect example yeah. because they are saying, and that's and that's where their creativity argument comes in. They say, you know, someone who's stealing your music mm -hmm. and using it as part of something that they upload onto their platform is actually their creative rights to do that's right. that that's trump right. your creative rights for having written that song in the first place. That's right. And I, I wonder if I wonder how you feel about this because all of these different facets of a landscape am i allowed to say that all of these different parts of the landscape about what we're talking about to me there are two parts to it that are actually the downward pressure on the entire fight okay part number one to me is basically a feeling and this comes from like the lars moment or the title moment blake why should you be paid and i don't exactly know who's saying this but it's in the bloodstream again blake why should you be paid for the job you don't really have you don't have a real job Right? right. So that's that's out there. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, behind the, the member of Congress saying, wow, you have a mortgage. In other words, you're an American with a job. Mm -hmm. Right. So part number one is, Blake, why should you be paid for the job you don't really have? Like, get a real job. You're on permanent vacation. You're on rock school and rock life <laughs> and you're on tour. And you, you know, why, who, who are you to complain? Right. That's sort of number one. Part number two to me is a very tech thing. And the way it feels to me is we are changing the world and creating the future. <laughs> and we're making life better for everyone on the planet. And why are you getting in the way about this? Why are you getting in the way with your griping about how you should be paid for something that our entire platform is built on? Right, right. Details, details, details. That's yeah. part two. So like number one is why should you be paid for the job you don't really have? And part two is 
Blake, don't you just understand that we're eradicating evil yeah. around the world? And if you would just let us not pay you for anything, right. it would be all better. Yeah. You're a detail. So the, the second part is like, we're a detail. Right. 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 No, no, no. You're the detail. You're the user. Yeah. <laughs> if have your tears, please prepare to share them now. I'll tell you why I've been trained You show me how to believe Oh, behold Love has senseless things Take your time Oh, no, you would sing Seems to me that your prayers became a vice Seems to me Jesus Christ was like a knife He would cut, he would tear He loved to own your soul Drink the wine, taste the blood, play the tone That was Middle Testament by Horse Feathers. Buying merch from your favorite band is a great way to support them, but with so many bootleg and counterfeit products online, how do you know your money is going to the artists you love? Whether it's a t-shirt or a patch, your purchase should be properly licensed. Our new sponsor, Rockabilia, carries one of the largest selections of official music merchandise in the world. With over 500,000 products, Rockabilia has something for every music fan. Check out their store at rockabilia.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to musician Blake Morgan. 
Well, I don't know how far down this rabbit hole we want to go, but I feel like this is part of the cultural conversation we're having these days, which is you're not anything if you're not part of a corporation or owned by right. a corporation. Right. And, you know, in in years past in this fight, I recognize that I've been loath to to join my activism in music with the sort of cultural and political discussion, a broader one in this country, about the 99% versus the 1%. I've been loath to do that because I've been loath to politicize what I've been talking about with my activism. You know, but I have to say when, you know, like the stats I gave you earlier about the 380,000 streams for minimum wage for a recording artist versus the average Spotify employee who makes $160,000 a year. Daniel Eck, the founder of Spotify, who was the founder of uTorrent, which became BitTorrent. He's a, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yes. He's a pirate. Yes. Okay. That's where he made his bones, right? right? He took that platform and created Spotify. And he's like Michael Corleone. He just wanted to go legit and have, right. you know, which is really what I think is behind his desire to go public with Spotify, to the IPO. It's sort of like, then I'll be a real man. You know, that's how it feels to me. But when that guy is worth $810 million and the people who make Spotify's only product need 380,000 streams a month to make minimum wage, this is a 99% argument and right. a 1% argument. Right. And what I hope I won't see in music in the weeks and months ahead what I hope I won't see is people on our side continuing the narrative that Spotify is too big to fail. Mm -hmm. And I've been loath to say this kind of thing in the past, but you know what? If I'm going to stand up or if I'm going to sit here on your podcast and say, well, this is a part of our national discussion because we're the middle class, then I have to be honest and say, you know what? This absolutely is an income inequality discussion. It is an income inequality fight. Right. And the reality is Spotify is not too big to fail. I'm sorry. I thought we had a free market economy. If your business model doesn't work and you can't make any money at it, you're supposed to go out of business. And by the way, that's what they say to us. Right. Because we're the ones who make their only product. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, if you can't make it, I mean, someone from Spotify actually said, you know, if you can't make it, you should write better songs. Right. Yeah. That's your, that's your, that's your response. Yeah. Uh, wait, no, no, there was, a, there's a dot, 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 until we build a computer that can write, <laughs> that can better, write songs. better songs, right? then we won't need because you at all. we're about the future, Blake. Why can't you just get out of the way? You know, it's, it's, it's just this like loop of non-logic, you know, that is actually pretty easy to demystify if you just sort of look at it and you don't get too deep in the weeds about it. But if when the founder of that company is worth $810 million off of stealing music and then monetizing it for himself and the people who work at his company while not paying for the people who make their only product, I'll say it over and over again. Yes, it's an income inequality issue. And what I'm most scared of when it comes to Spotify is that people in music, whether it's major labels or our own advocacy organizations, I truly hope that they don't pursue this fight with the attitude that they're too big to fail. They're not too big to fail. And we know, by the way, what too big to fail has done already to people in this country and to the middle class, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, uh, I think it's sort of becoming a simpler fight. And I think more and more people are understanding that these sort of techno-oligarchic utopian ideals are far from that, you know? We are living, you know, everyone always says that the internet and especially in music, it's the wild west, but you know, the west wasn't wild forever. No. And it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, we're not living in a perpetual good, bad, and the ugly world, you know? Right. And I hope that that is actually where music heads as well, that we head out of those sort of dark ages. Right. I wonder, though, because I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's all tied up in current politics because I don't know, and I'm depressed to have to say this out loud, I don't know how much resonance the words middle class have anymore, to be honest, because I was thinking about what you said about you are a middle class musician, but you don't really have a real job, right? right. You're not a legitimate right. middle class person because no. you don't have a legitimate middle class job. Right. And I'm just thinking, I feel like the way culture thinks of musicians is you have two options, right? You're either struggling mm -hmm. or you're a superstar. Right. Bartender or superstar. And that's it. That's right. And in the middle is this just nothing, this right. mystery. That's right. right. Now, I run a record label on which I would say every artist on my label who is still an artist, and that's what they do for a job as opposed to also having a job as a waitress mm -hmm. or a whatever, are um, they're middle-class artists, right? Mm -hmm. They make a middle-class salary. Right. And they do it by hustling. 
That's they right. hustle. They tour like crazy. They make the best albums they possibly can on shoestring budgets. That's you right. know, they do what they can. They they collect the pieces, the bits and pieces from all the different income streams. That's right. They're songwriters. They do publishing. They do right. maybe they do some licensing on the side. It's not that I don't have a job. I have eleven jobs. Exactly. They work harder right. to maintain that middle class lifestyle than if you just went down and got a you know white collar job mm-hmm. out of college and sat at a desk for eight hours a day. Right. But pulled a very consistent salary because those people are legitimate, but Justin Ringle right. from Horse Feathers somehow isn't. Right. And, and I'm that's... like, he's been putting out music and doing the job of an right. artist for 10 years. Exactly. Why is that not legitimate? And that's part A of the two the two pronged downward pressure on our lives as, right. as music makers. That's what I mean. Like, you know, you don't have a real job. So what are you complaining about? Right. And then the other part is a very tech specific thing, which is, well, why can't you just get out of the way while we actually change the world for the better? You right. Know? There's an implicit moral criticism in there, which is that you don't deserve it. Right. You don't. You don't deserve right. to make a living beca- right. or a middle class living because you're not getting with the program. You're not being a regular member of society. You've chosen this wacky artistic path. That's right. And the only thing you do deserve is to be plucked out of obscurity and made into a superstar. I've said this on the Hill and I say it every time I talk to a group of college kids. One of my proudest moments every year is when I file my income tax and it says occupation and I put down musician and it's not a small thing. Like I tear up. It means the absolute world to me. It's everything I ever wanted in my life. Occupation, musician. It's not a detail. I'm not a detail and I work hard for what I do. And I think that teachers should be paid for their work and carpenters should be paid for their work and bus drivers should be paid for their work. And I think that music makers should be paid for their work. And none of the people that I just mentioned are details to our society. So true. Well, we could go on for hours, but I feel like probably that's enough of your time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Blake Morgan, thanks so much for being on The Future of What. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Blake Morgan, Taiwan Housing Project, Horse Feathers, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.